expectation of smelling the aroma of heaven, for instance. So it was those sorts of things that I was talking about, and it was rooted in uh, Romans 12 too. <clears throat> but I want to go a little bit deeper with this uh, this morning. So um, Romans 12 too, which I'm sure you uh, are all very familiar with, says, do not be conformed to the patterns and ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, you'll remember that word mind in the Greek is dianoia. And dianoia does mean mind. It means understanding. It means intellect. But it also means imagination. Be transformed by the renewal of your imagination. Now, if you think about it, everything flows from there. Everything we do, it starts in our imagination, which is why I think Paul... Um, wrote this phrase because it was really, really important. If you think about it, the, the imagination is the ability to, to see in our mind what we can't see with our eyes. Does that make sense? So we're seeing in our imagination things that we literally, you can't see here. And in our imagination, it basically becomes the, the seedbed for either hell on earth or heaven on earth. And we see that through church history. Those who, in their imagination, have conceived hellish things and they've come about. And those in their imagination have conceived heavenly things and they've come about. So if you think about it, um, I was just thinking the other day, in my imagination, if I go back to my childhood home, I can, I can literally walk around that house, even though I was sort of five or six at the time, and I can count all the windows in that house in my imagination. Does that make sense? It was, it was weird, because I, I can't remember what happened last week, but I mean, literally, I, I was walking around each room and counting the windows. And if, I, I suspect if you did that, you could do it very easily. But that's the power of the imagination. And the interesting thing is, I think a lot of Christians um, kind of don't have much vision for their lives because they can't see God's will for their lives. I mean, how, how often do, do people say, I don't, know, I don't know what God's saying, I don't know what he wants me to do you know, what his plan is for my life. And I'm convinced that it's because the imagination, the sanctified imagination, hasn't been engaged. I think it's more powerful than we think. So you think of the creation story. How did all this come about? Well, my guess is that God the Father imagined it. And then it was dropped into his heart. And he thought, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And then Jesus, the word, saw it there and spoke it. And the Holy Spirit enabled it. But it started in the imagination. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 18, we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So again, Paul is, is pulling on this, this um, the importance of the imagination. We can only see the unseen realm through the imagination. It starts there. And I think actually, so when I, when I was talking about this, uh, about seeing in October, my belief is that it starts in the imagination and as we lay hold of that and it becomes real, the possibility to literally see the unseen realm with physical eyes becomes possible. Is this sounding strange? Proverbs 23.7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. For as he thinks, as a person thinks in their heart, so they are, so they become. So, for instance, if we, if we sort of constantly think, um, I haven't got enough money, you could have thousands of pounds in the bank. But if your mindset, if your imagination is telling you, I'm in lack, I'm in lack, I'm in lack, you will always live from that place. It's like... Um, Glass half empty, glass half full. How, do you, how does the imagination see what's going on in our lives and what's going on around us? Um, our Old Testament reading, um, Elijah, um, I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to remind us what happened before that moment. So if you remember, been, Elijah had spoken and drought descended on the land and it remained for three years. So um, it was quite dire, but he was fed up with the people of Israel because they were, they were basically not honouring God and they were worshipping Baal. So he lays down a challenge to the prophets of Baal, um, and um, Jezebel was, was the, the person who was really championing, championing, whatever that word is, Baal. And so Elijah says, okay, I lay down a challenge. We're going to make a sacrifice. You prepare your wood, I'll prepare mine. You prepare your bull, I'll prepare mine. Now, there were 850 prophets of Baal. And he said, once they're prepared, you call on Baal and tell him, ask him, beseech him to send down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. So that's what they prepared, etc., etc. And um, the 850 prophets of Baal started beseeching Baal to send down fire. And it went on and on and on, and they were cutting themselves and they were crying out. It was almost like um, Elijah started to take the mick out of them, sort of saying, he, he might be a bit deaf or he might be busy. I think you need to yell a bit louder. But as we know, nothing happened. And then Elijah poured, gets people to pour water all over the sacrifice that he's prepared, calls on the Lord God, fire comes down, consumes the bull, the wood, the, the earth, it says, and the water. And then he kills all 850 prophets of Baal. And then he um, sends his servant up the hill to look for rain. Do you remember? And he goes seven times, and on the seventh time he sees a cloud, cloud the size of a man's hand. And he comes back and reports that he sees this cloud. 
So um, Elijah says to Ahab, you better get going in your chariot because rain is coming. And if you don't go now, you're going to get bogged down. So off he goes. And then he, Elijah hoiks up his robes and overtakes him. So there's Ahab going in a chariot pretty fast. And Elijah running overtakes him. Who would like to do that? I would like, yes. <laughs> Thomas at the back would like to do that. And then we have that moment when Jezebel says, if by this time tomorrow I don't make you, Elijah, like my prophets of Baal, in other words, dead, and you can imagine, you know, if, if he's killed 850, the smell of blood and the gore, it must have been pretty, pretty out there, pretty gruesome. So it was very real. But it's extraordinary. Immediately fear grabs him. And he heads for the hills to hide. And you think, how, how did that happen? After all he's seen, suddenly in his imagination, the only thing he can see is him dead in a gruesome way. Another story, Caleb. Caleb in uh, uh, Numbers 13. Do you remember uh, Moses sent um, Caleb, he basically sent 12 spies into the promised land. They were basically the head person from each of the tribes. And they were basically going to check out the land, this land that God had promised them, flowing with milk and honey. And they came back and um, basically the report from the, from the spies was, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the descendants of Anak were giants. And some say that Goliath was a descendant of Anak. But the interesting thing is they also came back with some fruit from the land. And if you remember, it was a bunch of grapes. But it was so large, it was put on a pole and was carried by two men. So talk about flowing with abundance. But what happens here? I mean, we all know, don't we? Basically, um, Caleb, well, basically the ten are saying, don't go there. The giant's there, we can't... We cannot um, overcome these people. It's a bad idea to go into this land. And Caleb says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread to us. In other words, we can literally consume them. We will overrun them. There's an ease in it. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But, again, somehow, fear takes root. In their imaginations, they see this as an impossible task. Um, and, and basically, fear spreads throughout the people to such an extent that they want to stone uh, Moses and Aaron. They're saying, why did you take us out of Egypt? The result... They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. 
Then we move to Joshua 2. And do you remember now what's basically happened is that generation died in the wilderness. And Joshua is now leading the people. And he sends some spies into Jericho. And uh, they meet up with Rahab, who's hiding them. And Rahab says this, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So they heard it 40 years earlier and all strength, all will to fight had drained out of them. If they listened to Joshua and Caleb back then, they would have taken the land 40 years before, but they were defeated in their imagination. They basically saw themselves. It, uh, it says in uh, verse, verse uh, 33 of Numbers 13, it basically says, we saw ourselves as grasshoppers before them. So in their imaginations, before these people who were in the promised land, that's what they saw. We're just this tiny little itty, but they can literally just stand on us. We're done. Defeated in their imagination. And yet those people had already given up. They weren't even going to fight. So do you, do you see, just from the, those two Old Testament accounts, the power of the imagination, both for negative and for positive? Let's look at Jesus' life. So, um, in Matthew 18, Jesus says this, unless, unless you change, unless you change and become like ch little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you think about it, it's interesting he says little children, because if you think of little children, their imaginations are mad. They're amazing. They, they live in this imaginary world that is so real to them. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, we need to get there. We need to activate our imaginations, but they need to be sanctified imaginations. Is this making any sense? Good. So the gospel reading, we were, um, the, the reading, the story of the 5,000. Say it again. Conservatively, 15,000 people to feed one small lunch, and what do the disciples, in their imagination, they just see utter impossibility. Their imaginations are set on this, this small lunch. But Jesus' imagination is going mad with the abundance of the Father, and knowing the nature of Father as Jehovah Jireh. He just knows. In his imagination, everyone's going to be fed, and there's going to be more than enough. Um, Luke 7, the widow of Nain. Do you remember that story? Jesus coming into the town of Nain, this uh, funeral cortege coming out where this young man, the only son of this widow, has died. It's a theft. Jesus sees that, has compassion, goes up, stops the funeral bearer, and basically says, young man, get up. And the dead man wakes up. 
Lazarus, we all know that story. Lazarus, come out. He's been dead three days. Out he comes. But what do people see? The people there saw finality. Death is finality. You don't come back from death. But Jesus saw a theft. So everyone he raised died young, before I would say the age of 70. But I often think about 120, 120, because Moses died at 120, healthy. Um, he saw theft and he saw life abundant. And he released that into both those men. And they came back to life. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit for they are folly, folly to him. And he, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So again, it's just having that natural carnal mind. Do not be conformed to the ways, the patterns of this world. And right now, in this current, if you switch on the news, it's very easy to get caught up in the politics, the, um, the state of the climate, all these things. You know, fear can very, very quickly attach itself. When we're looking in a mirror, we see a version of ourselves. We see that sort of, that, that physical image. However, it's our spirit that is the real us. Are we aware of that? We are made in God's image. God is spirit, and it's that image. It's spirit to spirit, which again, seeing it, so I, I've been trying to sort of practice this in the morning, looking in the mirror, when, and, and imagining seeing Jesus looking back requires activation of your imagination to do that. Running out of time. I think the way we do this... Um, it's, it's kind of not an easy thing in some ways, but it's getting into the word of God. The word of God is truth. It's in, in that place that we, we have the ability to fire our imaginations to see the reality of heaven. And it's rooted in the word. One of my spiritual heroes, Smith Wigglesworth, used to um, say, when people were reading the newspapers, he would say, um, why would you want partial truth when you've got the whole truth? Why would you want partial truth when you have the whole truth? And I think we have to get into scripture. And we can't read the word expecting change if we don't allow it to quicken and enliven our imaginations. And as that happens, if we allow our imagination, so rather than just sort of reading reams and reams, yes, we need to get context, but, but looking at the truth that's in here and allowing our imaginations to run with it, sanctified imaginations, so reading it in line with what we know about the nature of God as revealed in the creation story, the plan A of God, 
as revealed in his names and as revealed in Jesus, then hopefully we're beginning to see things change. 2 Corinthians 10 says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. It's those thoughts, it's our imaginations, making it obedient. It's really simple, but it's not easy, if that makes any sense. So our spirit is actually is the same as Jesus's. And we are seated with him in heavenly places. So we're actually, every one of us here are actually in two places at once right now, which is rather extraordinary. 1 Corinthians 6 says, the person that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. 1 John 4 says, as Jesus is, so are we in the world. As Jesus is right now, so are we in the world. And that's mad. But it needs our imaginations to be activated to the truth of what that's saying. To start affecting the earthly realm. So once we begin to activate our imaginations, once we begin to see what's in the heavenly realm and, and keep going after that, it's just a matter of time before we see that thing in the natural. So just a quick example. I mean, I quite often daydream about raising the dead. I really do. And, and I just sort of go off on these dreams and, you know, and dead people are being raised and it's amazing. Or walking into a hospital and, and walking down a ward, not saying anything, not touching anyone, but the very fact that I'm in the room, people are suddenly getting well. And the reason I'm dreaming those things and imagining those things is it seemed to be what Peter did seem to be what Jesus did. And also, if you struggle with that sort of thing, why don't you take some of the stories, the miracle stories that Jesus did, and meditate on them, and then place yourself in the place of Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus. The man who was born blind, Jesus spits on the dirt, makes a bit of mud, pastes on his eyes, just, just do it. And then tell him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And watch him come back rejoicing because he can see. Or if you're resurrection, how about Lazarus? Lazarus! And it's you doing it. Come out. But fire the imagination, the sanctified imagination. And I, I firmly believe as we do that, that we will start to see those things that we're imagining happening. 